I do have hope when I look at the things that are happening in our culture. I have hope because our God is good and he is still on the throne. And if you consider history and you look at what has happened in times past, God, he does work even in dark times. And it, you don't even have to look that far back in history. This church is the product of a move that God made here in Southern California in the 1960s and 1970s. There was a movie that Greg Laurie put out last year uh, about the Jesus people. And this, this church came out of that event. Some of you became Christians because of that. And so at that time, you were hippies. Uh, you're no longer that, but um, praise God. <laughs> but... <laughs> How's that mean, John? <laughs> you still are, John. <laughs> so uh, I, st I have hope because God moves in difficult and dark times. And, and our ultimate hope is that. And God has chosen to use you, his church, to reach a dark and distasteful world, to be salt and light to a world that is in desperate need. A lot of people think that California is hopeless and unredeemable. And we all have friends and neighbors and people who used to be a part of this church who left the state because they think it's just hopeless and unredeemable. I don't, I don't think that that's the case. I'm not planning on leaving. I, I hope to stay here for a long time and I hope that we can see God move in a big way. Uh, but I, I do travel quite a bit and I have found on a number of uh, occasions recently, as I travel, I'll have conversations with different pastors and Christian leaders in other states, and they'll say, you know, we're introducing ourselves, and I say, you know, I'm Miles, I pastor a church in North San Diego County in California, and without fail, I will have multiple people say to me as I introduce myself to pastors and Christian leaders in other places in that way, they'll say, oh, wow, are there any Christians in California? And I will go, and I love to respond by telling them, you do realize there are 40 million people in California. It is the fifth largest economy in the world. And there are 40 million people that live in this state, which means, and I, and I love to tell my friends when I meet them in places like, you know, Kentucky or Tennessee who are serving in Mississippi or Alabama, I, I, I love to tell them, you do realize there are more Christians in California than there are people in your state. There are a lot of Christians there. And God moved in a mighty way here in Southern California in the last part of the last century, and it had major implications for the world. And that can happen again. And I want to encourage you that it can happen again. Now, one of the difficulties in that, that whole conversation that I have with people when they say, are there any Christians in California? And I go, well, there's more Christians in California than there are people in most states in America. Many times we misjudge the size or the greatness of things. And it's easy for us to do because we have a perspective problem. I have a picture to illustrate this. Uh, you want to put that up? You know, looking at that, there is one Lego guy that seems bigger than the other Lego guy, although, next picture, they are the same size. Why is that? It's a perspective issue. And this is a problem when we come to the Bible as well, that we have a perspective problem. And we're going to see this as we study through the book of Judges. I already sense that it's happening as I talk with some people about us going through the book of Judges. When we talk about the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, and the book of Judges from 3,400 years ago, when we talk about the judges who delivered Israel or delivered the tribes of Israel, 
many times we are looking at the nation of Israel through our 21st century American conception of nation. What do I mean? Well, we live in a nation of 340 million people. So when we hear nation, and we hear of a judge who delivers the nation of Israel, we are thinking on this scale of 340 million people. But when you really take a look at what we understand about the nation of Israel in the 14th century BC, which is the time period of the book of Judges, the nation of Israel was probably less in population than the county of San Diego. There are 3.4 million people who live in San Diego County. And there was probably somewhere around that population or less who were of the children of Israel who lived in a landmass that's just about double the size of the landmass of San Diego County. So about the population of this county living in a place twice the size of this county is what we find when we come to the book of Judges. What's the point of this? Why is this even important to consider? Well, it's important to consider that the judges that God used to deliver the nation of Israel, and when we hear nation, we think huge, this great expanse, 340 million people. That's our perspective. We're imposing our understanding on something that happened 3,400 years ago. When we hear about the judges delivering the nation of Israel, we think huge nation, extraordinary spiritual man or woman of God, and in reality, what we have is localized problems and ordinary and average individuals that God used to bring about deliverance for the people of God in that area. At the time of the judges 3,400 years ago, the nation of Israel was a relatively small regional tribal people. And they were divided into counties, if you will. You know, they had the county of Judah and the county of Benjamin. We call them tribes of this or that. And these individuals, they would be invaded by people who were in and around them. And then they would be delivered by a judge. The judges were not extraordinary standout rulers or leaders. They were ordinary people dealing with local problems. Why is this important? For this observation, point number one, if you're taking notes, the scriptures teach us the value of personal responsibility and here's a new word that you may not know, subsidiarity. Personal responsibility and subsidiarity. And, and I believe as we go into the book of Judges and we start to talk about the actual rulers that God raised up, men and women who God raised up to deliver Israel, that this, this is going to be important for us to understand. Personal responsibility, I think we kind of understand. You know, many of you are parents, and you know, when you have your children at home, you want to try to teach them personal responsibility from the time that they are young. My wife and I, from the time that our kids were very small, we agreed that we were not raising children, we were raising adults. And so we wanted to teach them personal responsibility, which meant we wanted to teach them how to put their toys away and to put their clothes that were dirty into the hamper and to make their bed in the morning and to brush their teeth and do all these things without us constantly nagging them and telling them to do it. We're trying to teach them personal responsibility. They've gotten a little bit older now, and we're still trying to teach them personal responsibility. And it's really, really important. Why? Because we're raising adults, and we want them to be responsible individuals in the world that God is going to call them to lead one day. But this idea of subsidiarity, it's something that maybe we don't necessarily understand, although it's connected to things that we do understand. Now, this word subsidiarity, it is something that 
philosophers and theologians within the Roman Catholic Church have talked about for a very long time. But the concept shows up in Protestant teaching as well, but not always connected to the word subsidiarity. But it does show up in our founding documents of our country. How many of you have heard before of the people, for the people, by the people? You heard that? Yeah. The Ninth and Tenth Amendments of the Constitution in the Bill of Rights talk about this idea that the federal government, according to the Constitution, is to have ascribed powers and anything that's not enumerated or given to them as the ascribed powers or things that they're to look over are handed down to the people. At the local level, this is subsidiarity. Subsidiarity is the concept that you are really going to rule and guide your life. It is the idea that social decisions are made locally first. They're to be taken place first in the home, and then in the family community that extends out from the home, and then within the neighborhood, if you will, that it's to start there locally. From this also comes a very Protestant teaching of what's called the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. That is that the lower officials are to restrain the higher officials. So these two things kind of work in tandem or work together, subsidiarity and the doctrine of the lower magistrate. And we see this, all of this comes from the book of Deuteronomy and it's being played out in the book of Judges. That's what we're going to see. In fact, the book of the Bible that is the most frequently quoted by our founding fathers is the book of Deuteronomy. And the ideas of things like subsidiarity and that these things should take place at the local level first really come out of what we find in the scriptures. Why does this matter? Well, as we consider the nation of Israel during this period of history, the 14th century BC, and as we see them slide into idolatry and immorality, and eventually as a result of that, as they experience crisis and chaos, and then as we see them have their enemies come and oppress them, and then they cry out to God, and as we see God deliver them through a judge, it's really important for us to remember that the crises that the children of Israel faced, they were regional and local issues, and the deliverers that God raises up are average and ordinary people. This is key for us. And it's key for us because one of our big problems is that we think that all problems are big problems, and we see the big problems through our smallness, and we think there's nothing I can do. And that's going to be the temptation if you watch this documentary, because I can tell you last night, as I watched the two and a quarter hour long documentary, there were times where I thought, what on earth are we supposed to do about this? And I found myself in the last 15 minutes of it hoping, like, hopefully you're going to say, hey, this is what we should do, which I, I'm, I hate to break it to you, they're not going to say that. Because they're not exactly offering answers, they're saying, hey, there's a big problem. But really, in reality, our big problem is that we think that these problems are way, way big. In reality, there are a lot of little problems in local areas that need to be dealt with by people. And what people? People who know the truth and seek to live according to the truth and understand the principles of truth, goodness, and beauty are objective and understand that morality is real and that lives that do not live in accordance with morality but get themselves over to immorality and idolatry, serving things that are immoral, then that will bring chaos. It really is you, if you're a Christian today, who's gonna be able to have any sort of import to do something about this. One of the things that I emphasized greatly for a number of years. I taught a class at a local Bible college up the road 
I taught a class on church leadership or organizational leadership and church planting. And one of the things that I would teach every time was this, point number two, responsibility flows to those who show up. And authority falls to those who take responsibility. I can't even begin to express how important this concept is to me. This is like key to my philosophy of leadership and life and ministry. Responsibility flows to those who show up. You see, we think that responsibility shows to those who are qualified and trained and have unique giftings and abilities and talent. No, responsibility flows to those who show up. And then authority falls to those who just simply take responsibility. And what we discover, I think, when we look at the book of Judges is that there's a few standout people who stand out because they showed up. That's about it. And what we're going to discover is they had all kinds of problems. I mean, I just have to mention one name to point this out. And some of you have read the book. No, Samson. He had all kinds of problems. We'll see him in about, you know, 10, now 15 weeks or so. It'll be a while. <laughs> responsibility flows to those who show up and authority falls to those who take responsibility. The challenge is, and we'll see this in the book of Judges, but it is a challenge for you and I, is that when we see issues and problems that need to be solved within the family or on our street or in our neighborhood or in our community or in our region or county or state or the nation or the world, these problems, they seem so massive to us. But most big problems are actually local problems that need to be dealt at, with at the local level. Now, we live in a mass media and now social media age that takes local problems from other places and amplifies them to where we think they are big, big problems that can't be solved for us. We all know this because we've all experienced this. You know, we had some rains a couple weeks ago and th there was some flooding in Mission Valley. There's always flooding in Mission Valley. You can get like an afternoon of sprinkling and there's flooding in Mission Valley. But then how many of you have ever gotten a call from a family member who lives out of state and they're like, are you okay? I saw on the news there's flooding. Are you okay? You're like, well, that's kind of far from me. But what happens in the mass media, social media age that we live in, small local problems are amplified to be so big that we think that this is a devastating crisis for all of us. And it's something that is dealt with at the local level of subsidiarity. Most things that people get freaked out about in our culture are actually things that can be dealt with by one or two people, just handling it and taking care of it. One of the key things that I hope that we come away from as we study through the book of Judges this year is a renewed awareness that you must take responsibility where you are to use the gifts, talents, abilities, experience that God has given to you to accomplish his purpose for such a time as this. I think in a lot of ways... American Christians have become apathetic and indifferent to the issues that are right in front of them. Now, we're going to see this very clearly as we get into the Judges, so you can open your Bibles. If you don't have one, you can raise your hand and one of the ushers will bring you one. Judges chapter 3 is where we're going to be, seventh book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges. Chapter 3 
And as we get to Judges chapter 3 this morning, we are introduced to the first judge who some commentators say is the ideal judge, although we already know his name because we've considered him previously in Judges and in Joshua. So we're not going to spend a ton of time on him, but there are some things that we learn about the book of Judges from the story that we have here in Judges chapter 3 beginning at verse 5 that are helpful for comprehending and understanding the whole of the text. So Judges chapter 3 verse 5. It says, thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and of course the Termites. And they took their daughters to be their wives, and they gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. Verse 7, key, underline, highlight, exclamation point. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served Baal and Asherah. Therefore, because of this, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he sold them into the hand of Cushan-Reshethame, the king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan-Reshethame eight years. And when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them of the children of Israel, who delivered them, Othniel, we've heard of him before, the son of Kinez, Caleb's brother. The spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel, and he judged Israel, and he went out to war. And the Lord delivered Cushan-Reshethame, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed against Cushan-Reshethame. So the, Lord, the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kinez, died. Again, we've already talked about Othniel. We're not going to spend a lot of time on what happens here in this passage, other than to say this presents for us the cycle which is the simple cycle that makes up the seven sections of the book of Judges where we see these important judges rise to the sur surface. The, the cycle is always the same. It's very, very clear here in this passage. It, it always starts with this idea that we read there in verse 7, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Each of the seven sections where we will be introduced to different judges in the book begins with, and the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. We see it here in verse 7 of chapter 3. We saw it in chapter 2, verse 11. We'll see it again in 3.12 and 4.1 and 6.1 and 10.6 and 13.1. All of these sections begin, and the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. But the cycle begins be for that. And it kind of goes through 10 different steps. First, the children of Israel dwelt among their enemies. Then they begin to engage in covenants and contracts and marriages with their enemies. And then they are seduced into idolatry by those enemies. And then God's anger is stirred up against them. And then God passively punishes them through their enemies. And then they cry out to God who now raises up and empowers a delivering judge. And then God delivers them and the people serve God as long as the judge is alive. And then the judge dies and the cycle starts all over again. The children of Israel do evil in the sight of the Lord. It is a very simple cycle, but it is such an important one for us to observe and recognize and understand because why? All these things were recorded for our instruction. For those of us living at this time, even though we live 3,400 years after they did. And the observation here is very simple. Point number three, if you're taking notes, patterns in the past are predictive of the future. I know, mind blower. <laughs> I spent a lot of time thinking about that one. No, not really. You go, that, that's not very amazing. Well, no, it's not intended to be amazing, but it's true. Patterns in the past are predictive of the future. 
We all know this in some way at the very personal level. We've all done certain things more than a few times knowing I shouldn't do this. Or after the effects of it, we go, I shouldn't have done that because I knew exactly what would happen. Patterns in the past are predictive of the future. We know that this is true because we live in an ordered and orderly universe. There are certain effects that we can expect from certain causes. And it's always the same thing over and over and over again. Patterns in the past are predictive of the future. So I shared a few weeks ago something that is kind of a saying of our day, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Patterns in the past are predictive of the future. Idolatry and immorality led to devastation and despair 3,400 years ago. What do you think it will lead to today? You say, well, yeah, no, I get it. You know, living in 2024 in the United States of America, there's a lot of immorality, but we don't really have idolatry. <laughs> okay. Watch the documentary. Or maybe you tuned into the Super Bowl last week. It's all around us. What are idols? At their most basic and fundamental level, an idol is something that someone devotes themselves to, values, or worships, or trusts in, that is other than God. You are devoted to, you value, or you trust in something other than God. And the children of Israel, 3,400 years ago, they served idols and they committed immorality and it led to devastation and destruction. The same thing happens over and over and over again. If you sell yourself to idols in immorality, then you will sell yourself into slavery to that thing. It will become the thing that dominates your life. And some of you that sold yourself to immoral patterns of addiction in the past, you know this so well. And you remember what it's like to be a slave to that thing that you've presented yourself to. And we could say, well, God punishes that person because they've done that. Yeah, and the way that he punishes them is he just allows them to be given over to that. Romans chapter one talks about the people who have given themselves to idolatry and immorality. And in that passage, three times, it says God gave them over to it. God allowed them to be given over to that thing. They were given up to uncleanness. They were given over to vile passions. They were given over to a debased mind. And so that's what we see in this cycle in Judges chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. And it's the same cycle that we're going to see a number of times more in the text. In fact, it's the same cycle we're going to see in the very next section. Right about the time that Othniel died after the children of Israel had experienced 40 years, a couple generations of rest from their enemies, Othniel died. What do you think happened? Well, look at verse 12. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Underline, highlight, exclamation point. And so the cycle is going to begin again. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And then he, Eglon, gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, and they went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years, almost an entire generation. Eglon. What a name. <laughs> now, the name Eglon in the original Hebrew, is a play on words of two Hebrew words that are connected to a round cow. <laughs> if you look down at the end of verse 17, 
We're told, a little editorial note, Eglon was a very fat man. Now you have a picture. It's like Jabba the Hutt. That's what I think of. <laughs> right? That's Eglon, king of Moab. He was a very fat man. I mean, this text gives us an indication that whoever it was who penned the book of Judges, and many people believe that it was probably Samuel, who was a later judge, who also we come to meet in the next books after this, they say that whoever wrote this book was a little bit of, had a little comedic streak because there's some satire and some pretty funny things. In fact, this passage is like, I was a junior high pastor for a while. Middle school boys love passages like this. You're going to see, because Eglon was a very fat job of the hut man. And you're just like waiting for Luke Skywalker to show up. Second thing we see here is that this fat cow from Moab he gathered the people of Ammon and Amalek. So we have three nations mentioned here. The Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Amalekites. Now, if you read the first five books of the Bible, you will be introduced to these guys already because in the book of Exodus, as the children of Israel were leaving the Mount Sinai region, or they were leaving Egypt to come to Mount Sinai, they are confronted by the Amalekites. They were the first enemies that came and fought against the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 17. The book of Deuteronomy tells us what the Amalekites did that was unique. It says that the Amalekites... The children of Israel told, remember what Amalek did to you when you came out of Egypt, that they came and they attacked the edges of the camp of Israel and they took out those who were stragglers, the weak ones. Because of this, many times, Bible commentators and scholars, they will connect Amalek to the flesh. He is sometimes a type or picture of our flesh that gets our weak points, gets us at the areas of the edges of our life and takes us captive. And so the children of Israel are told by Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, remember what Amalek did to you because when you come into the promised land, you are to utterly destroy them. Now they don't. And we'll see that when we get into Samuel and we will see that Amalek will continue to be a problem for the children of Israel for a very long time. So first we have the Amalekites. Then we have the Moabites and the Ammonites. Now, the Moabites and the Ammonites, you're first introduced to them in Genesis chapter 19 because they are the descendants of a, of a, of a relative of Abraham. Abraham had a nephew whose name was Lot. And Lot, he lived around the region or within the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Not a good place to live. Like sin city amplified. And ultimately, God came and destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But before he did, he rescued Lot, and he also rescued Lot's two daughters. Now, his two daughters, it seems, after Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, they seem to assume that the entire world was destroyed, and they are the only ones left, just they and their dad. And so they concoct this idea. We're the only ones left. It relies upon us to repopulate the world. And all we got is dad. So they get him drunk and they have an incestuous relationship with their dad. It's a wholesome bedtime story. And what is the product? Ammon and Moab. So you can already see the picture developed here. You have wickedness and evil and debauchery and immorality in the flesh in Moab, Ammon, and Amalek. And they come and they fight against the children of Israel. And when they fight against the children of Israel... What is it that they take hold of? Well, it says, they defeated Israel. They took possession of the city of Palms. That's the city of Jericho. Now, the nation of Israel 
On the west is the Mediterranean Sea. On the east is the Jordan River. And sometimes you even hear in our culture today, from the river to the sea, something going on there. Well, that was then 3,400 years ago and still today. On the east side of the Jordan River, that's where the Amalekites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites lived. And now, because of Israel's sinful idolatry and immorality, the Easterners come into the land and they begin to destroy and conquer. And they take the city of Jericho, which, if you remember in Joshua, that was the first city that the children of Israel had taken and consecrated to God. And this reminds us that some of those places that we think are points of victory for us or secure and something that we hold on to, oftentimes those are the things that we guard the least. Let him who thinks he stands take heed when he thinks he fall or lest he fall. The Moabites, the Ammonites, the Amalekites, they came and they take the city of Palms, Jericho. And Israel served the fat cows of Moab for nearly a generation. Verse 15, but when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gerar, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. By him, the children of Israel sent a tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, Ehud made for himself a dagger. It was a double-edged and cubit in length sword. He fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. Many scholars think on the inside of his right thigh. So he brought a tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute with him, but he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said to Eglon, I have a secret message for you, O king. And Eglon said, ooh, keep silence. Bless you. And all who attended him went out from him. Now, you can't help but feel what's coming here, can you? Like I said, middle school boys love this passage of scripture. First thing to note here, though, is in verse 15. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. That word when, maybe circle it in your Bible. Causes me to wonder. Would God have delivered sooner? if Israel had cried sooner. Perhaps we can't know, although I kind of think I know. I think that our deliverance is often delayed because we, we dither and delay and self-loathing and defeat. And you wonder, well, why? Why do, we, why do we wait? Well, sometimes it's pride. Sometimes we wait because of self-pity or embarrassed shame or we... We wait because we don't think we have the ability or the power to stop this, or we think, like, maybe I deserve what's happening. And so we, we wait. I don't know exactly what it is, but I shared a verse last week out of Isaiah 30 where it says, God waits to be gracious to you. It's as if the Lord is just waiting for us to come to him. He is compassionate to those who turn to him. Now, in this passage, the children of Israel turn to him, but it, it doesn't necessarily say that they repent. They just cry out to God that things are difficult and they cry. This is the impulse of humans, really. Because God made us to search and seek for him. When, when things are going bad, we, we cry out to God. But there are times where we wait and we delay. And so the Lord raised up a deliverer. It was Ehud, a left-handed man from the tribe of Benjamin. Again, we have this interesting play on words going on here because the name Benjamin means son of my right hand. And he was a left-handed man from the tribe called the son of my right hand. And 
Bible commentators and scholars for a long time have argued about what is meant by this left-handed man. Now, there's the obvious way that we could look at the text through our 21st century eyes and we could think, well, left-handed means left-handed. It's just, you know, there's a minority of people in this room and throughout the world that are, they, they are left-handed instead of right-handed. That's probably not what is meant by this. There are other scholars that say, well, it probably is that he had some sort of disability or he was disabled or some problem with his right hand. Maybe he was injured in his right hand, so therefore he had to opt to his left hand. That's also probably not what it is because that would have at least tipped the people from Moab off to, okay, you know, he doesn't have his right hand, so maybe we should inspect him a little bit differently when he comes in to see the king. What is likely meant by this is that there were in ancient times, even among the children of Israel, there were a certain group of warriors, fighters, who were trained to be strong in their left hand because it would enable them to be great in battle in the certain ways that they fought. In fact, there was, we'll see it in Chronicles later on, there was a group of warriors from Israel that were better with the sling in their left hand than many other warriors were in their right hand. It's just like the princess bride, you know, that guy could fight with his left hand but he was not left-handed. And so there's something about this Ehud that sets him apart. Something that uniquely suits him for an opportunity. And I am convinced that it is true for us as it is with him. Point number four, if you're taking notes, God has uniquely enabled you to be effective for his exploits. I know that a lot of you don't believe that. But it is true nonetheless. You see, a lot of times we, we look around the people that are around us and we say, oh, I can see how that, that person over there is suited for great things. Or I can see that that person over there, that person's got a mind or they've got an ability, they've got some unique talent, they've got this, they've got that. So, so they're the ones that God is going to use. And we immediately look at ourselves and say, well, I, I could never. But I'm convinced the more I get to know God and get to know his word and get to know the people of God that every single one of you has been gifted, enabled, empowered by God in unique ways that are not the same as the ways that he's gifted and called me. He has placed each of us into his body for a specific purpose, task, telos, that he has for us. He has uniquely enabled you to be effective for his exploits. He raises up people at certain points in certain places to accomplish his purposes as he enables and empowers them to be effective for his exploits. See, the key here is not your inability or ability. It is God's power working in and through you. The Lord raised up this judge and the Lord empowered this judge and he raises you and I up and he empowers us as well to do great things, so that it has been said, one with God is a majority. Have you ever thought or wondered, why was I born at this place or at this time? I certainly have, and I think that God placed you and I at this place and at this time for a purpose. The judges were ordinary people, but God placed them and he empowered them to endeavor to accomplish great exploits for his purpose and plan. And you may not recognize at the beginning what is the specific gifting or enabling that God has given you, or you may not even fully see the task that he set before you, but it's still there. 
and he has something for you to do. This is illustrated in the early life of Jeremiah. If you read of the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1 verse 5, God says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you to be a prophet to the peoples. And we look at that and we say, well, that's Jeremiah. He was a prophet. God wanted to use him. He couldn't possibly use me. Well, now you sound like Jeremiah. Because after God said that to Jeremiah, Jeremiah said, Lord God, behold, I can't speak, I'm nothing. And we all feel that way. When the Lord says, come, I have something for you to do. So Ehud made for himself a dagger. It was a two-edged sword, about a cubit, 18 inches in length, and he fastened it under his clothes in his right thigh. He had a two-edged sword, and for the Bible nerds in here who know the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 4, you go, oh, that, that sounds familiar for some reason. It sounds familiar because Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So there's a connection here that is important. He hid it in a place that he hoped they would not look. And they did not look because they were a bunch of fat numbskulls. Now, they still dominated the children of Israel for 18 years. So, you know, they weren't completely deficient. But they didn't think to look and fully inspect this guy who was coming in to see their king. But Ehud, he, he risks everything because if they did catch him, they would, they would have executed him on the spot and probably killed his family as well. So he brought a tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Now, what do you think you bring as a gift to a very fat man? Absolutely. Some good Jewish falafel for sure. When he had finished... Presenting the tribute, he sent away the people, but he himself turned back and he said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king kind of maybe like cleaning off his fingers. Ooh, I can't wait to hear the special message. Bring it. He puts out everybody. Verse 20. So Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting in the upstairs of his cool private chamber, probably a rooftop patio, which is the norm at that time and in many places throughout the Middle East today. He was seated in his private chamber on the rooftop of his house, probably in the city of Jericho. And then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he arose from his seat, Eglon did. And Ehud reached with his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and he thrust it into his belly, even to the hilt. It went in after the blade, and the fat closed around the blade. And he did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and the entrails came out. Yes, the middle schoolers love it. The King James Version says that the sword went in and the dirt came out. Yeah, gross. And then Ehud, he went out through the porch, and he shut the doors of the upper room behind him, and he locked them. I don't want to over-spiritualize or over-allegorize the text, but remember, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And when the word goes in, the dirt comes out. It has a cleansing and purifying work. Cleansify, that's a new word. I like that too. When he had gone out, verse 24, Eglon's servants came to look upon their king, and to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. And so they said, oh, he's probably attending to his needs in the cool of the chamber. It's kind of stinky. He's probably attending to his needs. Let's give him some peace. So they waited till they were embarrassed. <laughs> they waited for a long time. It's like, man, this is, this is taking a while. We should maybe go check on him. No, no, I don't want to check on him. 
And still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore, they took the key and they opened them. And there was their master fallen dead on the floor. One big stinky mess. But Ehud had escaped while they delayed. He passed beyond the stone images, escaped to Syrah. And it happened when he arrived, he blew the trumpet, the shofar, in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains and he led them. And he said to them, follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and they seized the fords, the crossing points of the Jordan River, where the Moabites, Ammonites, and Amalekites would have gone back to their homeland. And they did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time, they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men, which that word stout is probably more like fat men of Moab, men of valor. Not a man escaped. And so Moab was subdued that day and the hand, under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Point number five. Do not underestimate what can be accomplished when you show up. I was in my teens, 14, 15 years old, when I heard the invitation here at this church, I grew up at this church, and I heard the invitation to show up, to show up and help out. And I did, I showed up and I helped out. And you know what, I, one of the things I used to do as like a 14, 15 year old kid here at the church, I would fold bulletins. Now we have a machine that does that. You know, you've seen that sign, you know, hey, you might have a job that robots will do in the future. Well, I did and I folded bulletins and I just thought, well, I, I can't do much. I'm 14, 15 years old, but I, I mean, I, I could fold a bulletin. No, I can, that's no problem. But it did not take long as I was 14, 15, 16, until I was 19 here serving at the church. In a very short period of time as I showed up, you know what happened? Well, responsibility falls to those who show up and authority flows to those who take responsibility. And the next thing you know, as like 19, 20-year-old kid here at the church, now all of a sudden people would come in and they'd ask questions about something and they'd say, oh, go talk to Miles. That's his responsibility. <laughs> and then people who were like twice my age would come and ask me what to do. And I go, why are you coming to talk to me? They said, it's your responsibility. I go, like, how, how did that happen? <laughs> responsibility flows to those who show up. And authority falls to those who take responsibility. And then an amazing thing happens. When you're in that position where you show up and you're like, I don't know what to do, you really rely upon God. And here's the awesome thing. When you stand up and show up, God shows up. And he enables and empowers by his spirit to do great exploits that you and I could never do on our own. And then the amazing thing happened, God begins to open new doors for you into things that you go, how on earth did I end up in this place doing this thing? I guarantee if you talk to Larry, and I'd encourage you to do so, he probably has hundreds of stories of that exact thing. Because he was nothing more than a teenager as well who started serving the Lord one day. And the next thing you know, you're in other countries serving the Lord and sharing the gospel with people. And you say, how did I get here? And you go, I have no idea. But God says, I have great things that I want to do through you. It doesn't matter how old or how old young you are. He wants to use you for his kingdom. And if you want to see a transformation and a change in you, in your family, 
and your extended family, if your neighborhood or your business and your school campus or your construction site or whatever it is, or the county or the state or the nation or the world, it starts right there with you in that small thing in that small place. When you say like Isaiah, here am I, send me. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to do it. But the eyes of the Lord look to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself mighty on behalf of those who just simply say, I could try. Would you take this out of your bulletin for a moment? This is crowd participation. And I know I'm going over time. It's like executive privilege. Would you hold it up? I want to see that you have this. Okay, hold it up. Hold on. What's on the front of here? A plug. This thing right here. Most of you have one of these. It's pretty powerful. It does a lot of amazing and dumb things, but a lot of amazing things. Phenomenal things. And guess what? Completely, totally useless if it's never plugged in. That's the same for every device that you have at home that takes power. It has amazing things that it can do and completely and totally useless until you plug it into a source of power and then it accomplishes amazing things. And, and you are like that device. Totally useless, but phenomenal potential power. And as you plug into God and his body, the church, and you serve, God will do great exploits. And it may seem like something incredibly simple, like doing something machines do now, folding a bulletin, handing out a donut. Don't worry, we will never get a machine that hands out donuts. We're always going to use people. But we sure need you. And if you want to see a transformation in yourself and in your culture, we need God to work through his church. And it starts in very simple ways because he who is faithful in the little things, God gives to them greater responsibility and opportunity. We need your help because we are in a desperate time. Eglon looks like a little chicken. And he was a big fat man in comparison to the problems but they're local problems and they're things that God has gifted and called each of us to be involved with. Would to God that we would stand up and show up and see God show up powerfully in and through us. Because the answer to the questions and the solution to the problems that are, we're facing us in our culture, they're not political, they're not economic, they're spiritual. And we need people filled with the Spirit of God to address those things. And it starts in the most simple and small ways as you begin to serve. So I'm going to continue to challenge you with this for many weeks because <laughs> we need your help. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? God, thank you for your word. It is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and it cuts deep and it exposes the thoughts and the intents of my heart, but it also cleansifies us. Would you purify and cleanse us? Renew our minds, transform us. Help us not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by your word, by your spirit at work in us so that we shine brightly in a dark world. 
because it seems so dark at this moment in time. God, do a work in us, we pray. We ask this today in Jesus' name. And all those who agreed said, 